Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This edition of Space Time is brought to you by Marley Spoon. The meals are delicious, and Marley Spoon makes it easy to cook like a real chef with only the freshest food and best ingredients, all in the correct proportions and with easy-to-follow instructions. And as a special incentive for Australian listeners, if you go to marleyspoon.com.au, you'll get 35 Aussie dollars off your first order when you use the special code SPACE at the checkout. And for American listeners, go to marleyspoon.com and get 30 US dollars off your first order when you use the code SPACE at the checkout. Marley Spoon, changing the way you cook. This is Space Time Series 20, Episode 40, for broadcast on the 24th of May, 2017. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, direct from spacetimewithstuartgary.com or from your favourite podcast download provider. Spacetime is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world through TuneIn Radio and as in-flight entertainment aboard Virgin Australia. Coming up on Spacetime, the magnetic bridge linking galaxies, new clues about the origins of brown dwarfs, and the largest map of the universe ever made. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have detected a magnetic field associated with the Magellanic Bridge, a filament of gas stretching some 75,000 light-years between the Milky Way galaxy's nearest galactic neighbours, the large and small Magellanic Clouds. The findings, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, provide the first ever detection of a magnetic field in the bridge and may provide clues as to how it's formed. Visible in the southern night skies, the Magellanic Clouds are dwarf galaxies that appear to orbit the Milky Way. The more massive of the two, the Large Magellanic Cloud, is located some 163,000 light-years away. It's about 14,000 light-years wide and contains about 10 billion times the mass of our Sun. The Small Magellanic Cloud is about 200,000 light-years from Earth. It's about 7,000 light-years across and contains about 7 billion times the mass of the Sun. Now, by comparison, the Milky Way is somewhere between 100,000 and 180,000 light-years wide and probably contains well over a trillion times the mass of the Sun. 
The Magellanic Bridge is a stream of mostly neutral hydrogen gas dotted with stars which runs between the large and small Magellanic clouds. It's thought to be caused by the gravitational tidal interactions of the two galaxies towards each other. This bridge contains a greater concentration of stars in the western part, with two major density clumps, one near the small Magellanic Cloud and the other, often called Ogle Island, located midway between the two galaxies. Now, the Magellanic Bridge shouldn't be confused with the Magellanic Stream. That's a 180,000 light-year-long stream of high-velocity neutral hydrogen gas clouds, which connect the Magellanic Clouds with the Milky Way. It's also thought to be generated by gravitational tidal effects between the galaxies, primarily as the Milky Way cannibalises gas and stars from the Magellanic Clouds. The study's lead author, Jane Kazmerich from the University of Sydney, says there were hints that this magnetic field might exist within the Magellanic Bridge, but no one had ever observed it until now, the problem being that such cosmic magnetic fields can really only be detected indirectly. The authors used the CSIRO's Australia Telescope Compact Array at Narrabri to study changes in radio signals coming from hundreds of very distant galaxies which lie beyond the large and small Magellanic clouds. The radio emissions coming from these distant galaxies served as sort of background flashlights shining through the Magellanic Bridge. The magnetic field within the bridge changed the polarisation of the radio signal. And exactly how that polarised light was changed tells astronomers about the intervening magnetic field. You see, a radio signal like a light wave will oscillate or vibrate in a single directional plane. For example, waves on the surface of a pond move up and down. When a radio signal passes through a magnetic field, that plane is rotated. The phenomenon is known as Faraday rotation, and it allows astronomers to measure the strength and the polarity or direction of the field. The observations of this magnetic field, which is just a millionth the strength of Earth's magnetic field, may provide insights into whether it was generated from within the bridge after the structure formed, or whether it was ripped out from the dwarf galaxies themselves when they interacted to form the structure. Understanding the role magnetic fields play in the evolution of galaxies and their environment is a fundamental question in astronomy that still remains to be answered. Scientists are still learning how such vast magnetic fields are generated and how they affect galaxy formation and evolution. Kaz Marek says the large and small Magellanic clouds are our nearest neighbours, so understanding how they evolve may help astronomers better understand how the Milky Way itself will evolve over time. So we actually used a radio telescope called the Australia Telescope Compact Array, and we observed hundreds of distant galaxies. And the light from these galaxies, we actually use kind of like flashlights to kind of almost pick up on these very subtle signals due to the magnetic field in the intervening Magellanic Bridge. So the reason that was so interesting was because the magnetic field, called the Pan-Magellanic Field, has been hypothesized for close to 50 years and no one had been able to actually detect it. So by doing this and actually being able to kind of see these little points of light spanning the entire higher bridge and the large and small Magellanic clouds, we were able to confidently detect it for the first time. And that was why it was pretty important, because we'd never actually seen it before. This Pan-Magellanic bridge has been fascinating astronomers for a long time. We see papers where scientists are reporting that they've detected stellar streams along the bridge, connecting not just the large and small Magellanic clouds, but also connecting it to the Milky Way itself. Absolutely correct. And one of the possible consequences of our work is that in detecting the pan 
Grand Magellanic Field in this way, it was actually the first time that we were able to find magnetic fields through mostly neutral gas, so things that don't actually emit polarized emission themselves. And so a possible consequence is that things like the, the leading arm or the streams or the Magellanic Stream itself might also have magnetic fields just like the bridge. So that was one of the major kind of findings, kind of pushing the future of this type of work. Explain how you actually detected these by looking at background objects. We use a technique called Faraday rotation. And so what Faraday rotation is, is it's actually caused by kind of a, a bipharyngence in polarized emission. So if you have an intervening magnetic field, it's actually going to cause the different kind of axes of electromagnetic wave to rotate slightly differently from how it was emitted. So if you look at a lot of these, you can actually kind of work backwards from the amount that it was rotated from what it was originally emitted as and figure out the intervening magnetic field strength if you know a little bit more about the material between you and some emitting source. So we were able to do this by building on other people's work on H-alpha emission in the bridge as well as neutral hydrogen emission in the bridge. So we are actually able to kind of work out how much stuff there is between us and these distant galaxies in order to figure out that the, the magnetic field actually actually had some strength. So that strength that we actually found was that it had a average magnetic field strength of negative 0.3 microgauss. So the negative just means that most of the field is pointing away from us. And then microgauss meaning it's actually about a million times weaker than the Earth's magnetic field. But because we were using this unbelievably sensitive technique of Faraday rotation that we were actually able to measure this very, very weak magnetic field. Do we know what's generating the magnetic field? Well, we had a we gave it a pretty good guess. Um, we worked out that the field itself in the bridge couldn't be created in the bridge or in situ. So we argued that this magnetic field, at least the coherent structure, was pulled from the large and small Magellanic clouds themselves. Now, it's not hard to imagine that if you were repulling charged particles, you'd create a magnetic field. Because anytime you have charged particles moving, you actually create a magnetic field. But the fact is the bridge is mostly neutral gas. So we've argued that this is evidence that magnetic fields are actually being pulled with the neutral gas in galaxy interactions. So we think that the field that we are actually observing was or is a consequence of tidally stripped gas, or sorry, tidally stripped magnetic fields that were ripped from these parent galaxies. Can you tell which way the magnetic field is moving, or is that not possible? We know which way the gas is moving. If it's indeed following with the neutral gas, they are flowing kind of towards each other, if that makes any sense. So there is, most of the bridge itself is believed to have been ripped from the small Magellanic cloud, but there's still this kind of general motion of the gas towards the middle of the bridge. But it's also worth noting that the large and small Magellanic clouds are also moving relative to the Milky Way. So as as this entire system kind of, so the large Magellanic cloud, the small Magellanic cloud, and the bridge are moving closer to the Milky Way, they'll actually interact with the Milky Way halo. And that all of the ionizing light coming from the Milky Way will actually cause the magnetic field that we're seeing to get stronger. So while the gas is moving kind of toward the middle area, we are actually going to start to see well, astronomical timescales, if you will. The field will be amplified with time as it continues to interact with our galaxy. Have we decided yet whether or not the LMC and SMC are in fact satellites of the Milky Way or are they just passing really close as they go about their own business? Um, that's a very good question. I 
do believe that it is accepted that they are companions of ours now. The major discussion is on what number passing they're on. Are they on the first pass around the Milky Way or are they on the second pass? I think they are now gravitationally bound with the Milky Way, so they will be our companions for for a little while longer. I think uh, about five billion years is what we expect before we can no longer see them in the sky, but they'll be in our night sky for, I think, as long as we can, as long as we'll be able to observe them. Five billion years will be part of Andromeda by then. Exactly. So it'll be a beautiful night sky in a different way. <laughs> Where to next? What do you want to do with this research now? You've reached this particular stepping stone. Where do we go now? So I think that this is a really important tool that we can apply to the evolution of magnetic fields themselves. It's been fairly well established that magnetic fields play an incredibly important role to the evolution of galaxies because they facilitate so many processes or make so many evolutionary processes possible on galaxy scale. But what we still don't really know is how magnetic fields themselves evolve. So now using this knowledge that, you know, magnetic fields can actually be stripped with neutral gas, that they're always involved with early onset interactions, I would like to actually apply this knowledge to the growth of large-scale structure. So I want to see if we see these same magnetic field strengths, the same kind of pattern in the orientation of magnetic fields applying to things like galaxy groups where you have much higher frequency galaxy interactions. And galaxy groups themselves are kind of like the Lego block of the universe because, yes, galaxy clusters are the biggest thing in the universe. They're kind of like evolved and dead. But galaxy groups, you can actually start building more and more structures using these these kind of integral mass scales, if you will. So that's my next step is to see if we can find this not just in our local group, but if this is a universal property to all galaxy interactions. I think it was a paper, was it two years ago, a paper on the magnetic fields of the Milky Way itself? Ah, yes. There's yeah. always papers on that. Yeah. How did they determine that? <laughs> yes. So what they did for that was usually looking at pulsars. So um, kind of these radio lighthouses, if you will, that are in the galaxy itself. And so how you see polarization changing towards these pulsars, you can measure something called an emission measure and a dispersion measure. And that will tell you about the intervening magnetic field strength. So there's a lot of, I should say controversy, but I should say, I'll say discussion about how accurate that is because we're not a 100% sure just how much stuff is in the way and exactly how far away these objects are. So, you know, if you're moving a pulsar around the galaxy and you're looking through more or less stuff, your, I guess, resultant magnetic field strength could be quite a bit different if it's in one position or another. The reason we couldn't do that same technique in the bridge is that there are no pulsars. So we had to kind of use a slightly, slightly different technique. But yeah, the Milky Way, the actual structure of the Milky Way magnetic field is a very fastly developed and I guess evolving piece of work because there is now this ability to finally measure it to a sensitive enough uh, level because this whole Faraday rotation world that's kind of exploded in the last, let's say, decade is only due to a recent technological advancements of radio telescopes. So we're really seeing the polarized world or I guess the, the light is being turned on into the polarized universe for the first time and we're just having a, a heyday in what we can find. So the galaxy Galaxy is just a natural target for us, but it's also a difficult target because there's just so much stuff in the way. We're in it rather than being able to observe it as a, you know, as an outside observer. But it, yeah, watch this space on that. It will continue to be developed, I think, in the next uh, at least five years. That's Jane Kazmarek from the University of Sydney. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos and junk on the web I find interesting, important or amusing. 
just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter. And on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com forward slash spacetime with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered a spectacular extended jet blasting out almost a light year from a young brown dwarf. The discovery, reported in the Astrophysical Journal, provides new insights into the origins of brown dwarfs, supporting an emerging picture that these substellar objects are formed in the same way stars form. Brown dwarfs fill the gap between the largest planets and the smallest stars. Generally speaking, at one end of the scale, brown dwarfs are at least 13 times the mass of Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. At the other end of the scale, some brown dwarfs are as massive as small spectral type M red dwarf stars. However, unlike true stars, brown dwarfs can't maintain core hydrogen fusion into helium, the process which makes stars like our sun shine. They can, however, fuse deuterium and lithium. Astronomers were studying a brown dwarf known as Mayrit 170-1117, located in the outer periphery of the 3 million year old Sigma Ori open star cluster some 387,000 light-years away, near Orion's belt. Using the SOAR telescope at the Inter-American Observatory, they detected this massive 0.7 light-year-long jet, which has been given the catalogue number HH1165, shooting out from the brown dwarf surface. It was traced by singly ionised sulphur emissions bursting out to the northwest of the brown dwarf. Emission knots along the jet revealed that the mass loss is time-variable, probably the result of sporadic accretion onto the brown dwarf. While outflows have been detected previously originating from young brown dwarfs, all those early detections were of microjets, at least 10 times smaller than this latest discovery. While young stars are commonly found to launch jets that can extend over a light year or more, this jet's the first of such size to be detected originating from a brown dwarf. Although they're often portrayed as exotic creatures, it's now thought brown dwarfs are far more numerous in our galaxy than stars like the Sun. However, because they're intrinsically faint and difficult to see, brown dwarfs have been more elusive and difficult to study than normal stars. For some time now, astronomers have suspected that brown dwarfs are formed through the same processes which make stars. Like stars, brown dwarfs are known to be surrounded by accretion disks at birth, and they build up their masses by accreting material from molecular cloud cores. This new discovery goes a step further. It shows that, like stars, brown dwarfs can launch powerful jets as they build up their mass through an unsteady episodic process. Now, it may seem counterintuitive that mass loss through jets is an integral part of how an object can grow or gain mass. But this situation arises because of excess angular momentum. It's a bit like spinning skaters pulling in their arms to spin faster as a result of the conservation of angular momentum. Similarly, when the large, slowly rotating cores of molecular gas and dust clouds collapse, they too tend to spin faster. In fact, they're thought to spin up a bit too fast in order to be able to squeeze down to the size of a star. Astronomers speculate that the cores of molecular clouds may have far more angular momentum than what can be contained by stars or brown dwarfs. So the system needs to lose angular momentum for the object to grow in mass. By removing angular momentum from the system, these jets help solve the angular momentum problem faced by stars as well as brown dwarfs. To test this hypothesis, the authors are now on the hunt for more extended jets from brown dwarfs in order to understand just how commonly they occur. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary.
Okay, now let's take a break from our show and welcome a new sponsor, Marley Spoon. One of the guys who helps me produce Space Time, Hugh, put me on a Marley Spoon. Tell me all about it. What they do is they create these really nice recipes, source all the ingredients and everything, pack them up into a nice big box and send them to you. Nice and easy. And talk about making cooking simple. You've put me on a Marley Spoon because you're a bit concerned about my diet, which is primarily <laughs> takeaway. So, I, I reckon, Stuart, if you tried Marley Spoon, we could change you. We could, we could sway you over to becoming a chef. That's how good they are, I reckon. Because I'm not a chef. And I ordered it up to give it a try for the program. And the recipes that they supplied... Are they hard to follow? No, simple. And in no time at all, you've made something really nice. And even my children were quite complimentary about the food. And that never happens in our household, I have to tell you. Now, I've got to tell you, I can burn water. Can I follow these instructions? You could follow these instructions, Stuart. Anybody could follow these instructions. They are so simple. I mean, as I said, I am not a chef. And I was turning out these gourmet dishes that I could fake my way through. It was fantastic. All right. What about if you've got special tastes? Like, for example, I'm a vegan. Yep, they've got you covered, Stuart. No problems at all. You will find vegan options on the menu. I'm gluten-free, for instance, and I was able to find some gluten-free options on there as well. Is it expensive? No, it's not expensive at all. We were able to absorb it within our normal weekly grocery shop bill. We have a certain budget each week for groceries, and we were actually able to reduce our supermarket shop as a result. Now, Stuart, we've got a really special offer for our space-time fans. If you're living in Australia, head over to marleyspoon.com.au, and when you sign up and use the code SPACE on the checkout, you'll get $35 off your very first order. And for our North American listeners in the USA, if you go to marleyspoon.com, you can use space at the checkout as well and get $30 off your first order as well. So Marley Spoon, changing the way you cook. And now, back to our show. Astronomers with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey have created the first map of the large-scale structure of the universe based entirely on the positions of quasars. The new findings, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, are consistent with Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. One of the study's authors, Ashley Ross from Ohio State University, says because quasars are so bright, astronomers can see them all the way across the universe, making them ideal objects to use to make the biggest map of the universe ever attempted. Quasars are incredibly bright and distant points of light powered by supermassive black holes as they feed. As matter and energy fall into a black hole, it heats up to incredible temperatures and begins glowing in ultraviolet X-rays and even gamma rays. While much of the matter falls beyond the event horizon to disappear forever into the black hole singularity, some of it is redirected by powerful magnetic fields to the spin axis of the black hole, shooting out into space at close to the speed of light perpendicular to the black hole's accretion disk. It's this bright glow which is detected as a quasar. These quasars being used by Sloan are so far away that their light was generated when the universe was between 3 and 7 billion years old, long before the Earth even existed. To make their map, scientists used the dedicated 2.5-metre Sloan Foundation telescope to observe an unprecedented number of quasars. During the first two years of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey's Extended Baryon Oscillation Spectroscopic Survey, or EBOS for short, Astronomers measured accurate three-dimensional positions for more than 147,000 quasars. The telescope's observations gave the team the quasars' distances, which they then used to create a three-dimensional map of where the quasars are. But to use the map to understand the expansion history of the universe, scientists had to go one step further, using a clever technique which involves studying baryon acoustic oscillations. 
baryon acoustic oscillations are the present-day imprint of sound waves which travelled through the early cosmos when it was much hotter and denser than the universe we see today. When the universe cooled down enough for the first hydrogen atoms to begin forming, conditions suddenly changed, and those sound waves became frozen in place. These frozen waves are left imprinted in the three-dimensional structure of the universe we see today. The good news about these frozen waves, these original baryon acoustic oscillations, is that the process that produced them is relatively simple and easy to understand. So astronomers have a pretty good understanding of exactly what baryon acoustic oscillations are and what they must have looked like at that ancient time. When astronomers look at the three-dimensional structure of the universe today, it contains these same baryon acoustic oscillations, but grown out to a huge scale by the expansion of the universe over the last 13.8 billion years. The observed size of the baryon acoustic oscillations can thus be used as a standard ruler to measure cosmic distances. Just as by using the apparent angle of a metre stick viewed from the other side of a football field, you can estimate the length of the field. You have metres for small units of length, kilometres for distances between cities or countries, and we have the baryon acoustic oscillation scale for the distances between galaxies and quasars in cosmology. Astronomers from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey have previously used the baryon acoustic oscillations technique on nearby galaxies, and then on intergalactic gas distributions to push this analysis further and further back in time. The current results cover a range of times that the team have never observed before, measuring the conditions of the universe more than 2 billion years before the Earth formed. The results of this new study confirm the standard model of cosmology, which researchers have built up over the past 20 years. In this standard model, the universe follows the predictions of Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. But it also includes components whose effect scientists can measure, but whose causes scientists don't understand. You see, along with the ordinary matter that makes up the stars and galaxies, the universe also includes dark matter, invisible yet still affected by gravity, and a mysterious component called dark energy. Dark energy is the dominant component in the present-day universe, and it has special properties which are causing the expansion of the universe to accelerate. The new research means astronomers now have baryon acoustic oscillation measurements covering a range of cosmological distances. And luckily, the findings are all pointing towards the same thing namely that the current model provides a really great match for the observations. Even though scientists now understand how gravity works, there's still much they don't understand, including what gravity actually is. Albert Einstein's general relativity describes gravity as the curvature of space-time. To put that another way, it's the effect mass has on the very fabric of space-time. Now, it's not much, but it's still better than their understanding of dark energy. And that's where surveys like EBOS comes in. They'll help scientists build up their understanding of how dark energy fits into the story of the universe. The EBOS experiment's still continuing, using the Sloan Telescope at Apache Point Observatory in New Mexico. As astronomers with EBOS observe more and more quasars in nearby galaxies, the size of their map will continue to increase. After EBOS is complete, a new generation of sky surveys will begin, including the Dark Energy Spectroscopic Instrument DESI and the European Space Agency's Euclid satellite mission. These will increase the fidelity of the maps by a factor of 10 compared to EBOS. In the process, they'll reveal the universe and dark energy in unprecedented detail. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. India has launched a new locally built telecommunications satellite. The successful flight shows India's growing space capabilities, both building and launching its own spacecraft. 
the 50-metre-tall Geosynchronous Satellite Launch Vehicle, or GSLV, blasted off from the Shatish Dawan Space Centre in Shrihari Kota on the Bay of Bengal Coast. The GSLV's first stage uses a solid rocket S-139 engine with four L-40H liquid-fueled strap-on Vickers boosters, burning a mixture of unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine and hydrogen hydrate with a dinitrogen tetroxide oxidizer. The core stage burns for 106 seconds, but remains attached for another 43 seconds, while the strap-on boosters continue firing. The second stage is then ignited following first stage booster shutdown, with the first stage still attached. Stage separation only occurs two seconds later. The GSLV second stage also uses a liquid-fueled engine similar to the first stage boosters, burning for about 140 seconds before stage separation and third stage ignition. The GSLV's third stage uses a locally developed cryogenic liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen fueled engine, burning for 12 minutes and taking the payload to its geostationary transfer orbit. The 2,230kg GSAT-9 South Asia satellite is based on the Indian Space Research Organization's 12K bus, equipped with 12 KU transponders and enough fuel for a 12-year lifespan. The $70 million communications satellite is part of an Indian project to promote greater ties with its South Asian neighbours, including Bangladesh, Bhutan, the Maldives, Nepal and Sri Lanka. Afghanistan is yet to join the partnership, however long-term Indian rival Pakistan has refused to be part of the project. Unlike India's other commercial space rocket, the PSLV or Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, the more powerful GSLV has raised concerns over its reliability, with around half of all flights failing to reach orbit. The mission was the second Indian space launch for 2017, and the next is slated for next month, with another GSLV taking a telecommunications satellite into geostationary orbit. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, your favourite podcast download provider, or direct from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. If you want more space time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos and junk on the web I find interesting, important or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, And on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com forward slash spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audio Boom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. This edition of Space Time is brought to you by Marley Spoon. As a special incentive for Australian listeners, if you go to marleyspoon.com.au, you'll get 35 Aussie dollars off your first order when you use the special code SPACE at the checkout. And for American listeners, go to marleyspoon.com and get 30 US dollars off your first order when you use the code SPACE at the checkout. Marley Spoon, changing the way you cook.